Hello, Giles here. And knowing that we have a family audience and the purple people often include some very young people, just to say that today's episode does include some language that some people may find uncomfortable or offensive. Welcome to another episode of Something Rhymes with Purple. It's presented by my friend Susie Dent, in my view the world's leading lexicographer, and by me. We're both British, and we're broadcasting from Great Britain. I'm in the capital city, London, and Susie is in what many people regard as the intellectual capital city, Oxford. Are you British? I am British through and through. Well, I say that, though, because um, my name may have come from the Norman conquerors because dent it may actually be uh, the French dent, meaning tooth. So maybe they had a nickname to do with their teeth. Alternatively, uh, it may just be a habitational reference because there is a dent in Yorkshire. How about you? Well, a lot of people think I'm German because I was born in Germany. Uh, But that doesn't make me German. I was actually born in a British forces hospital in Germany after the war. Uh, At the end of the Second World War, the defeat of Nazi Germany, uh, the Allied powers took over in Germany and it was divided into different quarters uh, with different occupying countries. Uh, And I was born in the British sector because my father, who was a lawyer, was sent to Germany following his years in the army as a magistrate. And he was helping to administer justice and set up justice in Germany. So I was born in a British forces military hospital in Wuppertal. But when you have to say on your passport place of birth, I have to put Wuppertal Germany. In fact, it used to be Wuppertal, West Germany, but anyway, it's now Germany. So people think, ah, you must be German. I think I am very British, going back a long way. I certainly feel British, and I felt it particularly just a few days ago, Susie, because I went to Hampton Court Palace. Have you ever been to Hampton Court Palace? I have, but not for a long time. People go when they're school children. You go to school exhibition. I remember it being haunted. That that was very exciting. Bits of it still feel haunted. And I think one of the joys of being British, in my view, is the story of the British Isles goes back so many hundreds, indeed so many thousands of years. And one of my favourite places is Hampton Court Palace, which was um, the home of King Henry VIII, um, the home of the Tudor Court. Uh, and there's still it's there, the Great Hall of Henry VIII's day is still there. And then later, a sort of Baroque palace was developed and it was built as the home Uh, for William III and Queen Mary II. Anyway, it is beautiful. And I was there, not just celebrating British history or an aspect of it, but also for a a charity evening. I'm one of the trustees of something called the Queen's Reading Room. Our new Queen, Queen Camilla, loves the joy of reading, loves books, and during lockdown started her own, really, I suppose it was a kind of book club, uh, where she recommended online books that she was currently enjoying, in case other people were interested. And it kind of took off. And so she developed this reading room so that other people who had interest in books could recommend their favourite books. And it's grown. And it's now a charity called The Queen's Reading Room. And we had a literary festival at the weekend. And the day ended. It was amazing. And I know I like name-dropping, but one of the reasons I like being British is because of our heritage. And so it was amazing to be at Hampton Court with Queen Camilla and, indeed, King Charles III, he came along too. And I was on stage with my uh, friend, the great British actress, Dame Judi Dench, who was performing Shakespeare. Again, another reason to be so proud of being British. So Derek Jacobi, another great 
classic British actor came on and did, oh, he ended the evening with a bit of The Tempest, uh, Our Revels Now Ended. And these are, you know, it was just, it was, it was magic. So for me, being British is part of our heritage. But what do you think people think of as stereotypical British things? Can we explore those maybe and un- unpack the language around them? I'd love to. I mean, for me, I always think that there is so much Britishness in the words that we use. I don't know, things like boffin, for example, for me is so, so British. And you remember there are some false friends in the words that we tend to think of of being quintessentially um, ours. And uh, things like stiff upper lip, which if you remember, um, you know, everyone says, oh, this is the, this is the, 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 the British characteristic, the national characteristic, is that they are um, stoical and resilient, but actually stiff upper lip was American. So not all the words... No. Yes. Hold on. Yes. Stiff upper lip is an Americanism. Yes. First mentioned in Harriet Beecher Stowe's Tom, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. How interesting. Mm. What about boffin? You mentioned yes, boffin. Yes, boffin. And, and no one knows where boffin came from, but you wouldn't find boffin in any other... Um, places would you i mean you just it's just such a british word what does it mean it means is it a scientist it means a person of learning what is a i mean i think i have been called a boffin in my time but now now it seems to be restricted mostly to um scientists as you say i think and and sort of people who are involved in technology more um so scientific or technical research but we don't know where it came from it i think emerged during the second world war and it was slang for an older officer um but we just don't know where it comes from and nothing to do with boffing someone in any shape or form so it's one of those words we don't know the origin of like dog (laughs) like dog um and then there are other words like Oh, you know, all the wonderful dialect words that we have, like Mardi. I mean, Mardi just belongs so much to Leicestershire and Northern Britain as well, doesn't it? That you wouldn't find it anywhere else. So for me, well, I when don't you know say... what about Mardi Gras? Is it a totally different word? Oh, that's totally different, yeah. So Mardi Gras means Fat Tuesday, and that's like lundi, mardi, mercredi in oh, French. Oh, my gosh, that's it, Mardi yes. Gras. So when they have, in New Orleans, when they celebrate Shrove Tuesday... Yes. Mardi Gras, it's because it's Fat Tuesday. It's before Lent. It's where you are spoke when you were supposed to So the to word Mardi up. that you're using, what you talk about as the English word Mardi, yes. what does that mean and what is the origin of that? Uh, Mardi just means sulky and petulant, and we think it comes from uh, Mard, M-A-R-R-E-D, spoiled of a child. So they're being Mardi because they're spoiled. The most typical thing, maybe it's not true now, but it certainly was, I remember when I first went to America in my gap year between school and university in the 1960s. I went to America, spent a year there. They, everywhere I went, they said, oh, you must love tea. You're British. I suppose that's because of the Boston Tea Party. But there was an association. Uh, Indeed, if you see films of the 1940s and 1950s, British people are always having a cup of tea. Yes, Uh, and fancy a cuppa. You'd never hear that anywhere else, would you? Fancy a cuppa. Yeah, putting on a brew. uh, Well, unpack these words. The word tea, where does it come from? Tea. Uh, Yes, yeah, so tea tea is um, actually when it w- was originally char for us. So we we talk about a cup of char, don't we? Um, and well, we used to. I don't think we do anymore. Uh, I do. I think so I hear it sometimes. Um, have a cup of char, but that is directly from uh, China, uh, which obviously has has given us um, a, a wonderful tea. Um, it's from Malay actually originally, but came to us from. Um, from Chinese, and so it is for tea as well, uh, because it's from Mandarin Chinese cha, C-H-A, and through its entire journey, uh, it has undergone many a 
sort of slight mutation, so that CHA became TEA. Goodness, so cha and ch- and TA are the siblings. same. same oh, they're the same things, yeah. Cha and TA. And a char lady. Oh, sorry. Yes, go ahead. that's exactly there. What about a char lady? Who was she? Okay, so this is this is um, slightly different. So this uh, a char lady actually goes back to a char, meaning a piece of work. Um, so uh, I can't quite remember. Let me see if I can look up where that itself comes from. But I know it's nothing to do with tea. Uh, used to be chair, C-H-A-R-E. And I think then that you will find, this isn't in the dictionary, but I think you will find that it then, char, as in char lady or turn of work, is related to Charing Cross, to the char there, because Charing Cross is at a turn of the river. Uh, because char meant a sort of a, a turning or a coming around again, um, or some sort of movement that kind of goes round. Um, and I also think that the word ajar, as in the, the um, I'm, I'm speaking off the cuff here, but as in the door is ajar, it began as a char, meaning it's on the turn. It's it's almost almost open, almost closed. How do you relate that to the cleaning ladies who used to be called char ladies? They're, they're not yeah. called that anymore. Because they're doing turns of work for you. Oh, my goodness. She's my char lady. She comes and does a turn of work. And, of course, you give her uh, a cup of char uh, at her elevenses, a little break. I love tea. And guess where I was when I, before I went to Hampton Court, I came to Hampton Court from another part of the country. I came to Hampton Court from a county that is the only county, the only British county, the only English county that features in the Bible. Where would that be? Yorkshire? It is in Yorkshire. Yorkshire oh. isn't mentioned in the Bible, but the no. county within Yorkshire that is, is the East Riding. Oh, of course, the Ridings. The East, and the East Riding is the only county that features in the Bible. Do you know where it features? Uh, no, but I can tell you where Riding comes from in a minute. But no, uh, where does it feature? It comes, I think, in the Gospel according to St. John. And lo, three wise men uh. came from the East riding on camels. Oh, you are so bad. But, but it's so real. It's so true. It really is in the Bible. And I was in Bridlington. Yes, but there's a comma. I mean, that's just that's just. Well, it's fun. Very misleading. <laughs> I, I was I was in Yorkshire. I was in the East Riding. I was in Bridlington, which is on the sea. Bridlington is so bracing. I was in Bridlington Spa, where they gave me Yorkshire tea, and they gave me some to bring home because. And I also met there. The lady who is one of, this is interesting, she's one of the CEOs of Betty's Tea Rooms. And the, have you heard of Betty's Tea Rooms? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I've uh, been to Betty's in Harrogate. These are yeah. wonderful, exactly, Harrogate, Ilkley. They're all mm. over Yorkshire. Uh, it's wonderful, traditional tea room. And they serve, well, go to a Betty's Tea Room, you'll see what they serve. But they also serve Taylor's Tea. tea. Um, and in fact, they own Taylor's Tea. And this lady who I met, turned out to be a collaborative CEO. There's a company that has several chief executive officers and they they share the responsibility. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that's very good. They do it as a, good. a team effort and they find a it works very well. team effort. I love that. And um, the, the lovely thing about Betty's is you can have... I mean, we we can't not talk about Britishness without talking about all the amazing cakes and pastries that we create in this country, whether it is, um, I don't know, an Eccles cake to a bath bun. Um, I mean, ones that actually have their origin in there, but also things like crumpets. 
um, and scones and all of those things. Um, crumpet, again, a word that we, we just don't know where that comes from, sadly. We don't know. Crumpet goes in our list with dog as a word we don't know its origin. Oh, it's a very long list. Um, as it as it does with scone, uh, because at every show that I do, no matter what part of the country I'm in, when I ask for questions from the audience, I am invariably asked, is it scone or scone? And what is that again answer? is a very British question. The, the answer, answer is you can have either because it just depends where you are in the country. Oh. And etymologically speaking, although I say scone, because scone to me sounds just a little bit like you're trying too hard, scone, uh, scone is a bit closer to the origin, which is the German and Dutch schoenbrot, fine bread. We won't go into whether you put the cream or the jam on first. Let's not do that. It's such a British conundrum, you see. We are talking about Britishness, so it's all very relevant. Because we love tea. We love tea. I love a toasted tea cake. Oh. <gasps> With a little bit too much butter. That's yes. what I want. And a muffin? I mean, I know they have they have muffins in America. Well, for, yes, for in America they don't know, really, I think, what a muffin is. And I think they confuse... They don't know what a crumpet is or a muffin. I think they call them muffins and they're not quite muffins. Um, I think they have a different thing as a muffin in America. And there's a muffin. Well, they have English muffins. So they do They do have those. Um, but then they also have the blueberry muffins. What is the origin of the word we muffin? We don't know. No. Oh, for yes. goodness sake. People are tuning into this list. podcast to find out the etymology okay. of words. What about biscuits? We know where biscuit I'm sorry, comes from. I'm sorry, you just can't, can't be muffin dunk. in the air like that. I have o- to. Older listeners will remember Muffin the Mule. Dear old muffin, muffin the mule. Dear old Muffin playing the fool. I loved Muffin the Mule. Never, never okay, mind. I don't remember Muffin the Mule. Dobbing the donkey. That was a different story entirely. Muffin also has a rude connotation, or is it? Is it your your midriff can be your muffin if it's a bit? Oh, muffin top. Yeah. What does that? Yes, mean? your muffin top. It just is. It's like you know, on a on a blueberry muffin, you've got the um uh, the, the sort of paper container for the muffin that's that's sort of ruched around the edges and then at the top there's this overblown thing that's kind of you know it, like a, a sort of crest of the mountain at the top and if you have a muffin top and you're wearing a, a very short cropped top and there's a lot of stomach visible above your jeans ah. it looks like the top of a muffin so it's very when, mean. when your stomach is exposed it yes. could be referred to as your muffin yes but we don't know the origin of the word muffin in relation to the food no but i can tell you about biscuits because do you dunk I know that biscuit comes from the French, biscuit, yeah. twice cooked. Twice cooked. Uh, I do dunk. I'm a, I have a weakness for dunking. D, what, what do you like to, to dunk? I like to dunk a ginger biscuit. Ah, uh, I don't know. I, don't uh, I used to like, when I was younger, I quite liked to dunk a chocolate hobnob because I liked the idea of the chocolate going all sort of glossy before oh, I put it no, but it all ends up in the tea. It, it does. So I've abandoned it. Can I tell you what the word is? Yes. It's one of my favourite words that is just, um, it comes out far too too rarely. Um, you know when you have dunked a few too many biscuits and you have these little floating bits of crumbs in the top? They're called flizzums. Flizzums. Who has invented this word, flizzum? <laughs> oh, it's actually, flizzums are in any solution or liquid. They are little pieces or particles floating around, but I just applied it to biscuits. The other thing that is absolutely quintessentially British in terms of food is fish and chips. Oh, yes. Yeah, but don't you think that's a very British thing? Totally. I mean, uh, yes, you can't cut. Well, fish, I suppose, is a very old word, and but where does chips come from? Fish is from German. Fish. 
uh, yes, yeah, so they're not French fries, are they? It's from an old English word meaning to cut off because chips are pieces cut off from a piece of potato. And that's also why we have a chip off the old block. You have a chip on your shoulder, which... Explain the chip on your shoulder because I know what it means. It means yeah. you've got something that is sort of, that it's a kind of running sore that you can't stop. You know, he's got a chip on his shoulder. Yeah. Um, but where does, what, why is it a chip on your shoulder? Uh, well, it's thought that back in the 19th century, much like throwing your hat into a ring, which if you were in a, a, a sort of group and a fight broke out and an imaginary sort of fighting boxing ring uh, was, was sort of, you know, there on the grass, that people would throw their hat into this imaginary circle as a signal that they were ready to fight. And we think that um, in the 19th century, when two people, mostly boys were determined to fight, then a chip of wood would be placed on the shoulder of one. And so it's basically challenging the other boy to knock it off at his peril. That's the idea. Wow. That's interesting. What about it possibly being actually a physical chip? That's what it was, but not a French fry. No, but I mean like a blemish, like Richard III, oh. when you tell the story of Richard III, not the reality. Uh, though, in fact, I think his skeleton, when it was uncovered, showed there was some deformity. But he had, in a sense, a chip on his shoulder because he was bitter at the world because of his deformity. Could it have been literally having a disfigurement on your shoulder that made you have this attitude to life? I'm, I'm throwing no record. that in as a yeah. possibility. No evidence of that, I'm afraid. Okay. Give it, let's have one more bit of food before we go on to other characteristics of the British after the break. The Sunday roast. Yes. Oh, yes. I love the Sunday roast. Even though, I don't know about you, but I'm vegetarian, but I still love all the trimmings. So if I go to a pub and it's a Sunday lunch, I will ask for a Sunday roast without the meat, which sometimes is a bit difficult because you can't have the gravy then because quite often it's got meat juices in. But I don't care, actually. I'm very happy. And also the roast potatoes often have been cooked in a That's animal true. fat. I mean, sometimes so, you can, sometimes can't you be. can't. But you can definitely make your own, can't yeah. you? I love yeah. it. Now tell me, Yorkshire pudding... Is part yes, of the Sunday yes. roast. And I suppose that originated in Yorkshire, simple as it that. It did. Uh, pudding is an interesting one because it is um, actually goes back to the French boudin, which means black pudding, uh, when puddings were very savoury. So it included the intestines of animals, it included um, uh, pork uh, and all, all kinds of meat. And boudin uh, also from the Roman word for a little sausage, botulus, also gave us botulism. So, yes, within the Yorkshire pudding are slight traces of botulism, oh linguistically God. speaking. What are the other aspects of a Sunday roast What you would have? Well, I love all the condiments. That's ah. my favourite thing. So I like the condiments, but I also like things like um, horseradish sauce. I mean, I don't have the beef, but I love horseradish. I love horseradish. Um, mint sauce, I could have on anything. Um, anyway, condiment goes back to, again, an ancient word, the Latin condimentum, meaning uh, pickled. Mm essentially, because they, they added, you know, anything added flavour to the food um, was a condimentum. Brussels sprouts, which I'm <gasps> yes. very fond of. Do they come now, from I'm, Brussels? I assume they don't come from Brussels, <laughs> or maybe they do. Why are they I called think they, might, they probably did uh, originally. Incredibly good for you. Um, I also love them. Um, a bit of cabbage. I actually don't know. I'm just going to find out here because I don't know the answer to this. I think it was Mark Twain who described a cauliflower as a cabbage with a college education. They are believed to have originated from Brussels, Good. yes. What What about yes. cabbage and cauliflower? Okay. Do you have them ever? 
uh, or every everything um because they are extremely good for you and they taste absolutely delicious yeah so i i love all of those the only problem is fumigating the house afterwards because it lingers for ages isn't it um in in my experience um i see them as being quite sort of germanic really um because they have coal uh, k-o-h-l they have sauerkraut which is you know that wonderful pickle cabbage but um cauliflower itself is actually from the french it goes back to the french choux fleury flowered cabbage Very which good. is quite nice well let's have a quick pudding before we have our break uh, what is you think yes. the quintessential british pudding is it bread and butter pudding Oh, I've got some of that in my fridge. I just need to tell you about cabbage, though. Oh, yes, good, Because please. it's from the Latin caput, meaning head, because it looks like a giant head, which, Very of good. course, gave us capitals in a capital letter. It so, gave us... Okay. What's yeah, your, sorry. What's your, no, my favourite pudding. I want to hear it all. What's your favourite pudding? Uh, blackberry and apple crumble and ice cream. Very Possibly good. Possibly custard. How about you? Crumble. That is good. And I suppose <sighs> that's simply because the... Is it breadcrumbs that are crumbled on the? I don't know what what, what makes it crumble. Yeah, it's a, it's savoury. You can have oats, can't you? It's just essentially the flour and the sugar. Uh, crumble, of course, related to the crumb with the silent b. Um, the b was added in the 16th century. It didn't have one uh, originally. Um, it, it, I think it followed dumb, um, where we have the final b, but. Again, don't pronounce it anymore. But yeah, crumble's always about, all, all about crumbs. So we added the word, added the letter B to crumb mm. for some reason. Why did we add it when we don't pronounce it? Well, we have so many silent letters in English. Uh, quite often in order to show off the classical heritage of a word. So if you remember, the B was added to doubt by Renaissance monks who thought, uh, oh, uh, D-O-W-T or D-O-U-T. Well, that won't do because this word goes back to the Latin dubitum. So we're going to stick a B in there, but we won't pronounce it, uh, which is what happened there. Um, and um, dumb, I don't think, because I think crumb followed dumb. Um, the, the history of pronunciation and, and letters is always very, very weird. But that actually came from German, from dumb, as in dummkopf, stupid. So I don't quite know why we put the B in there, uh, to be honest, maybe to go with thumb. Who knows? It was probably following a whole long chain of silent bees. This is Something Rhymes with Purple, where occasionally we speak over each other, which we shouldn't do. And the reason that happens is that I'm in London, England, and Susie Dent is in Oxford, England. Normally, I like to think that we as British people are very polite. Do you think good manners is part of people's view of what is being British? Um, I'd love to think that people still thought that, but I fear that thanks to the behaviour of some of us abroad, we have come to also have a reputation for being drunk, um, rude, and uh, unwilling both to speak a foreign language and to eat foreign food. That's my fear. I think that's the flip side. But I think also there is... Uh, I hope, an abiding sense that we have a very dry sense of humour and that, um, yes, most of us hopefully are courteous. Well, let's not talk about etiquette today because I think we could do a whole episode about etiquette. etiquette. I mean, if we were self-consciously polite etiquette, the the rules we might be applying, but of course etiquette, it must be a French word, etiquette. What what does it mean? Etiquette. 
Yes, it was a ticket oh. that gave you uh, all the rules of court. Oh. So it was a sort of piece of paper that said, you, you, oh, you must get this when you go to Buckingham Palace. You, you must address the monarch as such. You may not do this. You must wear this, that and the other. That was the etiquette, the ticket. They're very relaxed nowadays. You, they, you don't have to do any of those things. Uh, some people do still bow and curtsy. Um, and some people like using the traditional forms of address to royalty yeah. because they quite like the tradition of it and they feel it shows respect. But everybody is much more relaxed than they used to be. Uh, politeness uh, mm-hmm. used to be, what an, punctuality used to be the politeness of kings. You had to be <laughs> on time, didn't it? Where does the yes. word polite come from? Oh, polite is from uh, the French, um, it's from French origin to us and then originally from Latin polire meaning to polish. So if you're polite, you are refined. Um, put it that way. And punctual, as you might guess, uh, lots of associations with things like punctuation or puncture. It's all about being to the point um, because it is um, from uh, the Latin meaning to prick. Well, sometimes you prick the balloon of people's pomposity with a touch of sarcasm. Oh, yes. One of my favourite. Do you think sarcasm is a British characteristic? I find irony... Even as a linguist, I find it incredibly hard to define. And we all we, we all say what it's not. Uh, so famously, Alanis Morissette's um, Isn't It Ironic doesn't really contain very much irony at all in all the examples that she gives. You know, it's like rain on your wedding day. Well, that's not irony. Um, but it's re- it's really hard to say. Or well, that's what do, what is the dictionary definition of the word irony? What what does it... I think it's lacking. You see, it says the expression of one's meaning by using language that normally signifies the opposite. Ooh. which I, I don't. That no. that for me doesn't encompass it it's at all. It's more subtle. It's more nuanced than that irony, isn't it? The sub definition is a state of affairs or an event that seems deliberately contrary to what one expects, and <sighs> is often really amusing. Um, the irony is, I went to him for help, and he ended yeah, up. and he was useless. Me. Yes, but um, but I think it's. I do think it's broader than that, and I wonder if it's loosened its uh, shackles just a little bit. But sarcasm, I can tell you because you will recognise instantly one of my favourite etymologies. It goes back to the Greek for biting flesh, literally tearing flesh. Um, and it was applied to remarks considered so caustic that they metaphorically ate the flesh of their of the recipient um, and sarcasm and sarcophagus are actually linked um, relatives because a sarcophagus in ancient times was often made of a particular kind of limestone that was thought to rapidly decompose the bodies lying within it gosh well i'm glad then that sarcasm is not what we're known for irony i accept yeah you mentioned earlier the idea of a dry sense of humor and i yeah. i certainly think we have a lot of writers who are droll from mm. Shakespeare, Charles Dickens, P.G. Woodhouse. These are can be writers who are very amusing. What is a dry sense of humour? What do you mean by that? And why is it dry as opposed to wet? I mean, very, what? very good point. Uh, yes, so obviously dry means free from uh, from moisture. And I suspect, if I look it up in the OED as I will now, um, it'll it'll give us the journey, but I suspect it will be very, very long. Um, so yes, free from moisture. Um, in medieval physiology, one of the fundamental qualities of humours, planets, etc., you talk about a sense of humour that goes back to the medieval belief in the well, the ancient belief in our bodily humours, which were fluids in the body said to determine our uh, disposition. Then we have thirsty, 
um, understandably, not yielding water, um, of bread without butter or the like, of wines free from sweetness. Maybe that's the idea. It's free from sweetness and hence it's not schmaltzy, um, to use a different food metaphor because schmaltz is goose fat, isn't it? It's in um, Yiddish culture. But I think it, 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 if you're dry, also you're quite impassive. You're not sort of soft and sweet and tender. Um, so it's it's a kind of very restrained, um, held back humour, which is often, you know, very matter of fact, but much funnier as a result. Well, if there are people listening around the world, and we're lucky enough that there are, and you think we've not touched on any of the characteristics that you think are essentially British from your perspective, whatever you may be, North America, South America, the Far East, get in touch with us and tell us, actually, I think the most quintessential British thing is this, and we'll explore the language that you, your view of Britain gives us. If you want to get in touch, uh, we have a new email address. Please use this one, Purple People, because it is simply purplepeople at something with a G, somethingrhymes.com. Purplepeople at somethingrhymes.com is the way to send us an email. Jack Healy has been in touch. Hi, Susie and Jazz. Thanks for a brilliant podcast. We love this. I haven't been here since the start, but I've enjoyed rooting through the history. Yes, there are more than 200 episodes you can go back on. My question, though, says Jack, concerns the prefix para, P-A-R-A. It crops up in many words covering a lot of contexts. There are the roles people have, like paramedic, paralegal, Uh, paramilitary. There are things like parachutes and parables. There are intangibles like parables, uh, paragons, paradigms, and paradoxes. I know what paradoxes. They're two medical people, aren't they? Anyway, what does the prefix para mean? And by the way, is virtue the only thing to have a paragon? Thanks a lot, Jack Healy. I wish I had a simple answer to this one. This is such a good example of how versatile English is, because Para has many, many meanings. So one of them is side by side, so by the side of. So a paradigm is um, something that is shown side by side with another thing, setting a typical example or pattern. So a paradigm is a, a pattern or a model of something else. A parable is, um, it started as, I think it was the Greek parabola, um, and that is a story that is an allegory that sits alongside the truth, if you like, because you're making a comparison. You are placing a simple story side by side with reality in order to illustrate a moral or a spiritual lesson. And uh, that's so that's one of the meanings. A parachute actually means a protected it's a kind of protection there. So the para is um, much like parasol, which is protecting you from the sun. It is all about something that is protecting you or warding off something. It's a shield or a defense. That actually goes back to an Italian word, parare, meaning to defend or to shield. It's interesting to me how we have parasol, as in the French parasol, but we don't have parapluie, we have umbrella. Why have we got an umbrella, not a not a... Parapluie. Parapluie is lovely, isn't it? Um, it actually, the umbrella was um, all about shade, if you remember, because it was all about... A Ombre, of course um, it is. Yeah. Ombre. Yeah. Meaning shade. Um, exactly. Very good. So, did, you give us par- did you give us paragon? Uh, so paragon. So my next para is um, words that are, how can I put it? They're kind of beyond. So they're sort of over the 
they, they kind of are, they're separate from and they go beyond uh, something else. So you'll find this used in um, medicine quite a lot. So you'll find um, things like paraplegia, which we, we know about. It's something that is, is, is kind of goes too far, if you like. Um, and in medicines, there are many, 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 many para. Um, things in in that sense and a paragon is something which sits above or beyond something else it's a perfect example of a particular quality and that is probably the idea is that it's something that is sort of um, outside and actually its first application was as a touchstone that basically tested gold Um, so the Italian paragone was a touchstone that was used to, to test good gold as opposed to bad gold and it kind of was um a model again it's something that is sort of set apart so you can see you've got side by side you've got set apart and you've got something that wards off i've just given you three examples of it and it's it's really flexible but it's almost impossible to uh, to say about this prefix that it is it means this and that's it paradox i think is mentioned here as well that is para again beyond or separated from and a paradox is distinct from popular opinion doxa meaning opinion um so it's something that combines contradictory features really so a paramedic is distinct from an actual medic it's something else well it's it could be you see that a paramedic was originally one who delivered medical supplies by parachute um, so a bit like a paratrooper um and i think those were the first paramedics let me just check yeah a person oh, trained to be dropped by parachute with medical aid yeah 1950s how amazing! Because now, would you call the person who comes in the ambulance to rescue you from the side of the road when you've broken your arm, yeah. i.e., me last year? That I referred to them as paramedics. They didn't. They came by ambulance, but the original paramedics would have dropped on me from a parachute. Well, yeah, but and they might, you know, they they might actually come by air ambulance, might they? So yeah, it's a, it's a, a really really brilliant prefix, but not easy to nail down, as you can tell from that. But it's a great question, thank you. And it's the paramedics is what led to paralegals. That's just derivative of paramedics. I think it is. Yeah, I absolutely think it is. Although again, it's sort of it, it, it could fit into so many of the meanings of the other powers. But yeah, I think that is exactly how it started. Some people send us emails. Other people send us what are now called voice notes. <laughs> Hello, I'm Jeff Ward from Melbourne, Australia. Although I grew up in England on a diet of carry-on films and Sid James. And I thought about the word core as in an appreciation of the human body. And I wonder whether or not that could be related to the French word for body, core, C-O-R-P-S. Is there any link between the two? Thank you, Giles, core, and Susie, core. (laughs) (laughs) I love the way, Susie, you get a slightly longer I would just say four is in the dictionary as well, Uh, which will give... For those that don't know, the carry-on films were made in the 1950s, 1960s, and there were some later ones with the same group of actors. And they, the early ones particularly, gave you a real picture, a comic picture of British life. And Sid James was one of the leading players in many of these films. And it was. He, he, He was, I think, South African, but he sounded like a cockney. 
and he would say, craw, in an appreciative way. Yeah. What is the origin of this expression? Well, you'd like to think it was a bit onomatopoeic, like four. Uh, but actually, it was a minced oath. So remember, we've talked about this in our euphemism uh, episodes. Um, so essentially, it's an alteration of God, believe it or not. It sounds a bit strange, uh. but you would find gore blimey and then core blimey. Uh, so we think it's an extension of that. Nothing to do with cœur or core, sadly, but it's a lovely, lovely idea. Thank you, Jim, for getting in touch. Susie, yes. you're here and you've got three interesting words for us, I hope. I have. Um, one I think we just see a bit too much of in politics, don't if you'd agree, uh, Giles, but brabblement. Uh, to brabble is to argue stubbornly with another person, um, you know, about all sorts, sometimes about inc- incredibly trivial things. Um, that is brabblement and that is to brabble. The next one is a lychnobite. Um, this is how you pronounce it, L-Y-C-H-E. N-O-B-I-T-E. Oh, difficult word to spell. It is, isn't it? Um, Lichnobite. Lichnobite. And it is a person who essentially works at night and sleeps all day. (laughs) Ha! Well, indeed, like a a night nurse or a night doctor. Well, in the old Oxford English Dictionary, it's described as one who turns night into day. So it could also mean that you're a fast liver at night time, but I think that's quite a nice one. And then this one caught my eye. To sherp... Now, to sherp is to cut or trim, particularly plants, hedges and things. And sherpings is a word applied specifically to the overgrown plants that grow on the side of a river or a lake. You know, the ones that are just sort of mm. leaning over into the water. Never knew they had a name. That's a lovely word it is, isn't for it? a sherpings. lovely phenomenon. Yes. Well, I, I love your trio of words, which people can find on, on the notes that go with each programme. And if you come to one of our live shows, we play a special game with those three words. <laughs> Susie gives us the word, and then the audience chooses what they think would be the ideal definition for the word before Susie reveals what it is. And the best one, or the one that the audience and I seem to think is the best, we give them, amazingly, a something rhymes with purple T-shirt which is pretty damned exciting. If you want the opportunity <laughs> to play this game, I think our next show is on the 6th of July at the Bristol Old Vic. Uh, the tickets are on sale. Do come along uh, if you can get there. I mean, if you're in the United Kingdom, you can get there, even if you're on the British Isles. One of our shows, somebody flew in for the day, you know, from Dublin, just to come to our show. Oh, they I know, it was London so lovely. And lots of birth, birthday presents were given. Uh, yeah, but birthday recipients are given tickets. So it's a really nice idea. Do you have a poem for us as I well? do have do a poem. I certainly have a poem. And funny enough, I thought of it. I thought of the poem I would do during the course of the programme because I began talking about uh, the king and the queen. And I'm very conscious, of course, that not everybody is in favour of the idea of a king or a queen. We have people listening to this show who live in republics whom the idea of a king or a queen must seem curious and arcane. And also, we talked about sarcasm. And that reminded me of a poem which was written in an impromptu, it was just done off the cuff, about Charles II. And it was it's a famous poem, controversial poem written by somebody called John Wilmot, the Earl of Rochester. And I reached for a copy of one of my favourite books, which is a poem for every day of the year, edited by Ali Desiri. And I found this poem in it. And this is every day of the year. And this was a poem chosen for the 8th of May, because it was on the 8th of May in 1660 that the English Parliament met to restore King Charles II to the throne of England, Scotland and Ireland. And he, as you know, Susie, but not everybody will remember this, was known as the Merry Monarch. 
because he loved the arts and he loved wine and um, he was a bit of a ladies' man. Anyway, John Wilmot, the Earl of Rochester, often simply known as Rochester, was a controversial writer of poetry and a favourite of Charles. However, it can be risky being a favourite, and he pushed his luck too far with this poem that I'm going to read you now. It's only four lines long, which we are told he handed to the king himself. And when the king had read this poem, he was furious, and Rochester, the poet, was banned from the court of King Charles. And this is John Wilmot trying to be amusing, but going too far. Just four lines, an impromptu poem. God bless our good and gracious king, whose promise none relies on, who never said a foolish thing, nor ever did a wise one. Oh, I think I've heard that. Yeah, oh, you have wow. heard that. It's a famous, yeah. notorious poem. Epigram, yeah. It's, but but be warned, you know, you can, impromptu is, is risky, like surprise parties are risky. That's very true, actually. They can, they can go horribly wrong, which I really hope we haven't today because I really enjoyed that situation. Situation? <laughs> well, I, any situation. I'd like to be in any situation, situation with you, Susie Dent. <laughs> I very much enjoyed that conversation. I hope our listeners, well, uh, I, I've just said, didn't I? Well, I hope nothing went wrong and then promptly delivered the mistake, a mistake, one of many. But if you did love the show and you will forgive me my mistakes, then please keep following us wherever you get your podcasts and on social media. And for more purple, you can consider the Purple Plus Club, where you can listen ad-free and get some exclusive bonus episodes on words and language, including, I think, on this one. If you live in the United Kingdom or have access to a machine that can give you TV shows in the United Kingdom, you can see Susie Dent and me popping up on a TV show that we have here made by Channel 4 called Celebrity Gogglebox. Yes, you can watch it or stream it on Channel 4 on Friday evenings. I think it's at 9pm. Something Rhymes with Purple is a Sony Music Entertainment production. It was produced by Naya Deo with additional production from Hannah Newton, Naomi Oiku, Chris Skinner, Jen Mystery, Rishi, who is our mastermind today at the uh, keyboard, uh, because where on earth is he? Uh, He's eating some muffins somewhere. Yeah, the muffin king himself, Gully. And our next live show is on the 16th of July at the Bristol Old Vic. Tickets have gone on sale. Mm -hmm.